Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. One of the projects that I have been most consistently interested in over the last, let's say, five years is understanding, because of my own traumatic experiences, what was going on with baby boomers and other conservative Christians around this expectation that Christ would be returning and that we would all be raptured any day now. A lot of you have heard the four-part episode, End Times Anxiety, that I released a few years back were the two-parter end times expectations where I interviewed some boomers about that question. The psychological angle is of course the most interesting to me, but one really interesting facet of group psychology is the rituals and the shared art and items and language and, and all that stuff that a group shares together. They are things that bind people together, just like Taylor Swift fandom might bind people together. They also give an increased plausibility to certain claims. If everybody around you loves the same song and that song predicts Jesus's return, then what what's the role of the belief that Jesus will return soon? That's interesting. I've kind of been exploring that for a few years. But the new thing in today's episode is what's the role of the song? And the artist who wrote the song, 
What's the role of singing that continually week after week? When you get I Wish We'd All Been Ready by Larry Norman stuck in your head and you're humming it throughout your day, what's that doing? Is it making it more likely to you that that's actually coming, that that Norman is on to something? That's kind of what today's uh, conversation with Matt Knight is about. And he started doing some of his own research into that question. So, of course, I wanted to interview him. Now, it's always helpful for us when you share episodes of this show with other people in your life. So for this one, I'm thinking anybody who is who you think would be interested in that sort of musical angle or just people who are trying to understand the uh, premillennial dispensationalist, that's the fancy theological term for left behind rapture theology, anybody who's trying to understand that world. I think I might even say that baby boomers uh, and similar ages who really are familiar with the music of that time might be a particularly good audience for this episode. So please, whoever you think might enjoy it, please share it. And okay, let's just get into it here with Matt. Matt Knight, thank you for joining me here today. Great to be here. Thanks, Dan. So this is somewhat of an organic experiment. I've actually been wanting to do more of these kind of episodes where I don't know exactly where the conversation <laughs> is heading. Obviously, I am, I am regularly sort of pleasantly surprised or intrigued by things I don't plan for when I interview people. That can happen all the time. Mm-hmm. But I actually want to do more episodes like this where I genuinely don't know much of where it's going to go. I have a handful of ideas and and notes, but let me kind of set this up for the listener. So you heard me on the Bible for Normal People about two years ago when Pete and Jared interviewed me around my own personal, that is to say, non-academic, non-peer-reviewed, but this podcast-centered research, the End Times Anxiety episodes that I did, I interviewed about 20 people about their experience with end times teachings and mental health issues. And so I came on that show and then you had kind of something had been percolating in you to talk about music. And we're going to get into your own sort of studies and that background. And then you emailed me like two weeks before the Jesus movement music episodes came out, which were all about this era that you want to talk about. So that's kind of funny. (laughs) timing coincidence. So now you start telling us like, what is it that you were studying and what, what's the connection that you made such that you reached out to me? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was raised in an evangelical household and I grew up with the kind of the rapture narrative, reading the left behind novels and all that kind of stuff. And I just, I always knew this song. I feel like I wish we'd all been ready. You know, it was just something that was part of my, my world as I grew up. So I've always been fascinated by that and uh, ended up studying ethnomusicology for, you know, about 10 years and doing a master's and a PhD. Um, And my actual academic research has been in things like the study of collective singing, uh, in particular kind of choral music among old order Anabaptists living in my part of the world in Manitoba, Canada, Um, and also in the study of folk polyphony from the Republic of Georgia, former Soviet country out in the Caucasus. Yeah. So pretty unrelated to what I'm going to be talking about today. Although there are certain aspects of the way music becomes meaningful and powerful in individual and group experience that I think are very relevant to what we're going to be discussing. Absolutely. You know, that, that movie Jesus revolution. So that was 
a big, uh, many millions, maybe, I don't know, maybe made a hundred million dollars or something. It was a big mm-hmm. film. And there's been a lot of kind of Christian media sort of trying to tie itself to that film in one way or another and kind of, you know, wrap it in, which, which I understand. Mm-hmm. And, but, but actually that film and the story of the Jesus movement is a perfect example of the larger principle you're talking about. Mm. The role of music in basically forming a community identity. Oh yeah. Totally. And through through the research I did for those Jesus movement music episodes. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, informal research, but that was really one of the big takeaways was you don't get this movement without this music. Totally. And the the music has a way of i don't know maybe kind of like gluing a group of people together in a way that abstract theology or beliefs don't do it's probably closer to like a really charismatic leader that everybody goes and sees mm-hmm, together mm-hmm. but but maybe even deeper than that because songs get stuck in your head in yeah. a way that sermon talking points don't and so it music just can can be so central and that's why i'm so fascinated by ethnomusicology your mm-hmm. your field so one thing before i go on we're going to be talking a lot about larry norman and his song i wish we'd all been ready and i find it very interesting that the movie the jesus revolution doesn't actually have any larry norman music in it and maybe that was just a copyright thing um, and maybe he wasn't. Yeah, he he might have asked for too much money or something. Who yeah. Knows? yeah. I mean, that song was just at the dead center of the wheel of mm-hmm. that culture, that subculture. Maybe we should just play. Let's play like the original version sure. of that, maybe to kind of anchor ourselves. I will be playing some music clips today. Not quite as many as we did in that, those Jesus movement <laughs> episodes. That was a lot, but I, but maybe, you know, five to 10 clips, depending on mm-hmm. what we're talking about. So let's start with that. Um, which, which album version would you say is kind of the, the original or the main kind of cornerstone, if you will? I think just in terms of Larry's career, uh, it was his second major album, right? Only visiting this planet that is kind of regarded okay. as the classic. So yeah, let's hear the only visiting this planet version. So here is I Wish We'd All Been Ready or a part of it by Larry Norman. Life was filled with guns and war And everyone got trampled on the floor I wish we'd all been ready Children died, the days grew cold A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold We'd all been ready There's no time to change your mind The sun has come and you've been left behind The first thing I'm already hearing there, Matt, is this idea that things are getting worse Mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah. Which is, of course, a necessary component to any sort of apocalyptic imagination. Yeah, exactly. The apocalypse doesn't happen when, when, if, <laughs> like, like if you take a more like progressive Protestant or black Protestant view of the world, mm-hmm. something like that the arc of history is long and bends right. towards, towards justice. justice. Yeah. Jesus doesn't pop in and come back like, when you when we got from a C minus to a to a C plus and then Jesus shows up like it it's got to get down to a D minus or an F mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then Jesus saves us from it right so that that's really in there that was the first thing I thought I mean sort of if you want to go in a theological direction you could talk about how you know pre millennial beliefs tend to 
really take hold when people are feeling pessimistic and post-millennial beliefs are more optimistic, right? Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right there. To define those real quick, premillennial dispensationalism is the theological term for sort of the left behind books and, you know, Larry Norman's theology and the theology of the Jesus movement, mm -hmm. almost everybody in it, which is that the millennial reign of Christ, which is according to them predicted in Revelation and, and maybe Daniel, other parts of the text, that that happens later after uh, a big tribulation period, you know, which includes a rapture and the judgment of the earth and sort of God kind of reestablishes the kingdom of heaven on earth mm -hmm. and then Christ reigns for a thousand years. And some people take that literally, some people take it figuratively, but the idea is that we are not there yet. And post-millennial views associated with like social movement, gospel, social gospel, progressive movements in the United States, at least would say, no, actually Jesus reigning for a millennium is the era of the church on earth. And we are a part of that and we are helping to bring it about. We are turning swords into plowshares exactly, yeah. and we're on a trajectory toward the eventual kingdom of heaven on earth. But it's, it's a thing that we're already in the midst of. So we should expect things to get better mm -hmm. over time, essentially. What I find interesting about this first verse of the song is that, you know, the images that he's using, life is filled with guns and war, you know, children died, the days grew cold, right? This could be fairly broadly understood in all kinds of contexts, right? I mean, the song totally. was written during the Vietnam War, so obviously that was top of mind for a lot of young Americans who were worried about getting drafted. Um, but, you know, also it was in the middle of the arms race and the cold war, right. And all of these other kind of yeah, enormous yeah. kind of anxieties and pressures that people were genuinely feeling about the end of the world, you know, could happen at any moment. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways that people could have identified with that lyric. I think. I would guess, and I'm no American historian, but I would not be surprised that from the founding, you know, after the revolutionary war, let's mm -hmm. say, from then until now, other than maybe the Civil War, where the entire fabric of the country uh, is falling apart, mm -hmm. that there was probably no time in American history where it felt more accurate that the whole world, might, in fact, probably even compared to Civil War or the Depression, yeah. when we're less globally connected as people because of technology by the seventies, we're watching television about what's happening all over the world. Right. That didn't yeah. happen during the civil war. You know, people's worlds are smaller then. So I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to psychologize it, but the 1970s, like you said, cold war is accelerating. We've all seen the nuclear tests and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We've got Vietnam, which has spun into just this massive waste of human life and effort yeah. and, and ammunition and all this stuff. We've got a massive recession, you know, lines around the block to get gas for your car. Right. Just, just really the, the dream of the sixties has kind of fallen into shambles. There is probably no time in American history where the idea that actually the whole world yeah. might be ending, right. that that was more plausible than the early 1970s. And what's interesting about that is, you know, looking at the reception of this song more recently, maybe this is uh, not very uh, 
wise from an academic standpoint to look at YouTube comments and, you know, analyze those, but, um, <laughs> nor wise from a mental health standpoint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't read the comments. Yeah, totally. Ahead, please. But you see, I mean, so, so many discussions and comments about this song, you know, is more accurate now than it was when it was first written. Right. So I think obviously at any time in history, some people are going to be feeling like, oh my goodness, yeah. what is going on in the world? This isn't what I expected to happen. You know, I can't really, I can't predict a future that's going to look good for me or my kids coming out of this, right? Based on whatever yeah. anxieties they have. And, you know, certainly there are all kinds of things to be anxious about. I think one kind of psychological takeaway from that is that we are, as individuals, affected by the broader moment in which we exist at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And this song was written at a time, and the Jesus movement uh, blossomed and mushroomed at a time when global pessimism was perhaps at its peak in the United States mm -hmm. and Canada. Now we're probably not at that same quite peak, but we've got global warming to worry about. Yeah, right. We are even more connected than they were in the 70s to sort of the suffering of people around the world. Mm -hmm. We've got the war in Ukraine, yeah. which, you know, if you're if you're stepping back a bit is like, well... This might have been like a World War II type of a thing mm -hmm. <laughs> 70 years ago. It's cool that it's not 80 years ago, whatever. We're still getting news items about it constantly and yeah. sort of inundated with the suffering and the war crimes and all of that stuff. You know, it probably can feel quite similar in a in a human mind, mm -hmm. in a in an individual's experience, sort of depending on how plugged in they are, kind of how online they are, you might yeah. even say. What their um, news sources maybe are. More yeah, news, right. More news related than like if they're on, I don't know, if they're watching TikTok videos or something. Um, but some of those are about news and world yeah. events. So there you go. Yeah, I did actually see a few direct references to the war in Ukraine and more recent comments on videos of the song. So, yeah. But let's go back to sort of the 70s and then into the 90s, mm -hmm. you know, with Left Behind. You had this great line to me in your email. Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins are the authors of the Left Behind series. Yeah. And, and you wrote... Did LaHaye and Jenkins ever pay Larry Norman royalties because he probably deserved it? I mean, yeah, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> the idea that these songs are, they're so central to sort of um, giving language to and then propagating and yeah. sort of spreading a worldview. So maybe give us a little ethnomusicologist flair on that. Like, how does how does that work from a from a mechanistic perspective? Yeah. How do the songs spread the theology or something like that? Yeah. Okay. So I think there's kind of you know two two ways in which that works. Um, not to be too kind of paradigmatic about it, but um, you know there's obviously the collective experience of music making. So being in a concert or uh, in a worship service or you know or just kind of singing with friends in a small group or something really less formal right but there are all kinds of physiological things that happen when that is going on so you know there are many people who have written about things like uh going back to durkheim collective effervescence right this experience effervescence, of yeah. the group um he was really writing about religious ritual but you know in, in his understanding his analysis that was really the group kind of creating these you know totems of its own you know essentially the thing that they were worshiping was that experience of bonding so it was like coming back to these moments of being together and being in these really intense experiences of you know focusing all your attention on something singing together 
in unison. So what happens when you're doing that is bodily rhythms actually start to line up to some degree. It's something called rhythmic entrainment. When there's like a very powerful kind of musical stimulus, something rhythmic, you know, some people's hearts actually sort of work in time with that stimulus wow. and with each other. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not a, a scientist, right? So, um, well, no, that, but that thing you're talking about, like Trip Fuller from Homebrew Christianity, mm-hmm. my good buddy, he always talks about this as a critique of progressive churches Yeah, that they claim to be pro-science, uh, but it's actually the the lower churches, quote unquote, the the Pentecostals and the evangelicals and whatnot, who are actually utilizing mm. what we know through science around rhythmic group movement yeah. and singing and all that stuff, which, which, you know, Robert Bella, the late sociologist of religion um, in, in his frame of mind, predated language. Right. Yeah. That proto humans before we had evolved the ability for complex speech, mm-hmm. which is, you know, they're not to get too nerdy, but there are certain sort of anatomical things about our tongue and our vocal cords that, you know, are, are different from other animals, right. right. Other primates to whom we are related. And so he and others thought or think that actually we developed sort of rhythmic movement and rhythmic sort of guttural sounds and, mm-hmm. and shouting and stuff like that before we even developed complex speech ability. Yeah. And so it goes back to before we are even homo sapiens. Right. Before we were human. Um, yeah. Before we were human. And that to not utilize that is really just kind of dumb. Uh, and the reason <laughs> we don't utilize it is because we have various sort of cultural, you know, we're, we were raised in an environment like that and we're trying to do something opposite or whatever. Yeah. Um, the other thought I had was I'm thinking about the fact that right now the Taylor Swift tour, mm-hmm. you know, kind of residencies thing is going around the country and you see clips from it, you know, and she's playing different songs and there's all these Instagram videos and people are live streaming it. And it's like, it's like a cultural event right now that, you know, anybody who's interested in can sort of take part in, even if it's from afar digitally, Yeah, but that's collective effervescence. Right. There is this big moment and, and that's why people will pay a thousand dollars to be there. Mm-hmm. Not just because it's not because they like Taylor Swift's music, a thousand dollars, whereas they only like the weekend's music, $200 or yeah. $75. They don't like her 10 times more. Maybe they do, but the thousand dollars is worth it to be there right. to have the bodily experience. Right. One of the, the sociologists of kind of group experience that I like and uh, have quoted quite a bit is named Randall Collins. And he wrote a book called Interaction Ritual Chains, where he talks about, you know, how these, you know, basically takes Durkheim and kind of extrapolates from there into how uh, really kind of ritual structures govern a lot more of life than just kind of these big, you know, group experiences, right? Even a conversation can be a ritual in some ways, right? And there's also rhythmic entrainment happening there as you kind of take turns and you listen to the other person and kind of you're watching each other, right? So there's all kinds of synchrony. Um, But the main experience of the pop concert is the mood of the other fans, right? It's not just about listening to the songs by the person on stage, but you're part of this thing that you're wrapped up in, like you're experiencing all of humanity and it's sweaty and smelly and, you know, reality in that moment there. Right. So, and that again, lines up with the whole rhythmic stimulus thing, right. You're all grooving to the same music and it just creates this incredible atmosphere in, in where you are. So I think that 
I myself and listeners, we have a we have a little bit of trouble imagining ourselves in the place of these Jesus movement boomers mm-hmm. because of the harm that that group eventually did <laughs> to to us or our friends or or whatever, however we want to frame that, maybe the the harm it did to the gospel even, I mean, depending on where you're coming from. So, but I was just thinking like, I wonder if a way of kind of getting our minds into the place of what it would have felt like is to imagine, let's call it five, six years earlier, yeah. you're at a civil rights movement march mm. And everyone is singing, we shall overcome. Right. Or, you know, like that kind of a thing, you're marching for justice. Right. So the reason I'm saying that is that it's values. It's deep, deep values. The Taylor Swift concert is collective effervescence in the sense of everybody is here Mm -hmm. sort of it's bringing something out of everyone in real time that they are sharing with each other and sort of telegraphing to each other with songs that they love. Mm -hmm. And that is beautiful. And frankly, it's, it can be self-care. I mean, it's really good. That's really good for you. Go to a Taylor Swift show if you can afford it. (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) Or go to a show of a band that you love. Go to a show of a band that you love. That you're part of a community with other people. Exactly. Like it's really good. It's good for us to do that. Yeah. Um, but then overlay that like it was for the Jesus movement, overlay it with something that you f- are deeply passionate about yeah, that connects exactly. to your absolute greatest values in this world. Mm-hmm. So for a progressive, that's more like a civil rights march, right? you know, and we are breaking the bus boycott and we are singing Southern gospel songs as we are doing it. And we are watching Martin Luther King lead the procession yeah. or, or whomever, mm-hmm. right? That's that's more what it was like for these Jesus hippies. Yeah. You know, you think of those civil rights songs too, and how people were marching. Right. And these songs were pretty rhythmic as well. Right. They had um, a real kind of, and a call and response structure. Right. So you have to listen to someone and you have to come in together. Right. And that also feels good because you're syncing up with other people. You're involved in the same kind of process. Right. And these are also not just, you know, obviously they're not songs that are sung at a concert, right? They're things that you're participating in. So you yourself are part of that musical production, right? You're putting your own body into the rhythm and that has the potential to make it even more affectively, you know, powerful for what you're experiencing there. So Randall Collins also talks about when he's discussing these interaction rituals about how, you know, these, these experiences, how the power to sort of charge up symbols that the group finds important. And, um, you know, I think that's absolutely what was going on in these Jesus rock concerts, right? Like maybe if you were at a Janis Joplin show, you know, she's probably saying things about uh, how the war in Vietnam is, is bad, right? And maybe making some references to drugs and things like that. And those are aspects of your experience and your identity that you find important, right? But for so many of the people that were at these Jesus rock concerts, this is something that's really kind of a fundamental importance to them, especially, you know, they're experiencing this really amazing kind of thing. And then maybe having a conversion experience as well. Right. We know that sociologically those often don't stick, but for many of the Jesus people, I guess that that generation in the late sixties, you know, they will still kind of point back to those days and say, yeah, that's when I got saved and changed my life. Absolutely. You know, in so many ways, just turned around 180 degrees. 
Yeah, I, th- I think so much of it is the association with conversion. Yeah. And if not conversion, rededication, a sort of reorienting of one's life. Uh, there was a song we played called Welcome Home by Love Song. Mm-hmm. And it, it, we, we played and talked about it in the Jesus Movement episode, so I won't play it here. Well, it's basically, well, or maybe Welcome Back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like basically welcome back to the stuff that you knew was true. Right. Yeah. Th- this sort of like as a child or maybe you were raised in the faith. I don't know. You know, I don't know who the song was written about, but the way that I heard it as just sort of a third party was like, yeah, it is a kind of a return mm-hmm. to. And again, the vagueness probably serves it in terms yeah. of its ability for people to connect to it. Right. But there's something deep and older in you, maybe from childhood. And those are the types of things that religion trades in. And I trades even is the wrong word, just just deals with Mm -hmm. because religion by its very nature gets to the deepest claims about the universe, the deepest values that people hold. This is the reason why in present day. There's research and and movement within psychotherapy to mm-hmm. say, oh, we're not just doing biological, psychological, social. We're actually doing bio, psychosocial, spiritual, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. spiritual encompasses people's deepest values and it's tremendous fuel right. for making the changes that they need to change to, to, to thrive. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's just what religion works with. That's the clay that it works with. Right. And so if you can tap into that. And if someone points to a change in their life around that music, then that music will just never lose its power mm-hmm. or it will lose it a lot less than just other pop songs that they liked in 1973, like yeah. a Sonny and Cher song or something like that. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things I want to say about that. So first of all, you know, this whole kind of conversion experience, like if you look at Billy Graham rallies, I think studies have been done where they said that something about like 1% of those who, or maybe 5% of those who kind of made a decision to follow Jesus at a rally ended up actually following up on that and, you know, becoming kind of committed churchgoers. But I mean, obviously there's a bit of a self-selection thing here because the, the, the narratives that we're hearing are the people who actually stuck with it, right? They're saying, I went to this thing and it was incredibly powerful, but another aspect of that kind of, I don't want to just, you know, keep up bringing Randall Collins, but He talks about how if the experience is a good one at this interaction experience, this event, it'll make you want to go back to that, right? And it sort of becomes a little bit of an addictive thing. So you want to go back to that. And if you keep having these, um, you know, powerful emotional experiences, you'll want to continue that, right? So, you know, there are probably a lot of people who went to a Billy Graham uh, crusade kind of hard to believe that they use that word hey but anyway that's another topic um and you know got saved and then weren't necessarily plugged into other people who would bring them to church and when they went to church you know it probably wasn't the same kind of experience because there aren't three thousand people in an arena somewhere um who are all kind of you know focused on a single incredibly charismatic speaker like billy graham was right but i think maybe in the context of some of these jesus rock concerts you know, because there were so many of those things happening, there was just this ferment in the air, right? People did have the possibility of experiencing that over and over again, um, week after week, and especially in that kind of, you know, uh, Southern California area, and then other places around North America, where it spread to, right? So it was something that you could kind of keep alive um, in your your more day-to-day experience and really like look for it. Okay, you know, 
this was a hard week and, you know, maybe I slipped up and I did drugs again, but, you know, I know Sunday's coming and I'm going to go back there and I'm going to feel good again. Right. Well, that connects to something that has come up for me a lot in speaking with boomers about that time into the present day. When I start talking with them about it, what often happens is their eyes light up and Mm -hmm. they want to make sure I know about like 10 other artists. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Also like there was, it really turned into a whole scene. Yeah. And that kind of gets to what you're saying. Like, sure. There's Sunday morning is coming, but also there's going to be a new Randy Stonehill album and then a new Keith green album. And you know, all the way to 1979, we get Bob Dylan's conversion. Mm -hmm. And, and so in terms of, I always talk about plausibility structures on this show because It's one of the things that kind of helped me understand, you know, the Trump phenomenon and other things as well. I think it's very important Mm -hmm. for understanding the Jesus movement. Um, Certainly what we've already talked about, sort of that things are ending and the plausibility of that in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, But also, but also being surrounded by people who agree with you week to week, you know, every Sunday or a weeknight service or just your friends now that you spend time with every day mm-hmm. and you get to where like, okay, now even Bob Dylan is agreeing that, that things are coming to a close. Like I'm going to play a clip here of the song when he returns, which mm-hmm. you pointed out to me from slow train coming. This is 1979. I believe it could be yeah. 78. Let, let's hear a little bit of this track. And th- this is basically like Dylan doing a slightly lyrically better and slightly more vague version of I wish we'd all been ready. Yeah. Would you say that's a pretty fair description? Well, is it more explicit theologically when he returns, right? The sun is yeah, coming. It, it's almost more. Yeah, he's bringing more like honestly kind of gospel themes mm-hmm. into it of like n- none of this stuff is really going to be solved until Jesus returns. That's yeah. essentially what mm-hmm. the song is. It's a little bit less apocalyptic. But still, as a piece in this multi-piece plausibility structure mm-hmm. that someone might be building and constructing in their in their subculture, yeah. this would fit in perfectly. Also, it's just fun to note how Dylan is better than these other <laughs> artists. So yeah, let's let's play a little bit of when he returns for sure. slow train coming. How long can I stay drunk on fear out in the wilderness? Can I cast it aside All this loyalty and this pride Will I ever learn That there'll be no peace That the world won't cease Until he returns It just slides right in, man. Yeah, yeah. I love that gospel piano. Wow. I know. But, he, yeah. He's just operating. I mean, Larry Norman was, as I freely admitted in those episodes, a badass. Yeah. Uh, but Dylan's, you know, that mm-hmm. sounded like Keith Green style gospel piano stuff. I mean, if you're living in that milieu, mm-hmm. this just slots right in. But you're right. I mean, poetically, it's, it's um, you know, he's drawing on all of these biblical allusions in there, right? But he's saying it in in a way that's a little more artful. And, you know, this is actually kind of interesting because Larry Norman himself, he complained about a lot of Christian music, not employing, you know, literary devices and illusion and wordplay and surrealism. It's a good thing that Christian songwriters uh, picked up on that and changed that and fixed it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, imagine, right? Like we're saying how Bob Dylan is this level above Larry Norman. Yeah. Larry Norman himself was actually quite a yeah, bit he was quite better good, at doing yeah, that than good. many of his contemporaries. Absolutely. And I mean, many of those who the followed. thing is as much, and I said this on those episodes, mm-hmm. as traumatizing as I wish we'd all been ready was to me as a junior higher, it's a very well-written pop song. Like he's a yeah. very good songwriter and it's, you know, you can, you can just see the craft and you have to appreciate the craft. I can now it's bit, I've had enough distance to be able to appreciate. <laughs> yeah. The craft. Is this episode yeah. coming with a trigger warning? Cause it might be wise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure people will see the title. Uh, yeah. Anyway, there, there's some evidence that trigger warnings actually have the opposite effect. So yeah. I, I don't use them for that mm-hmm. reason, but uh, that's a funny joke though. Mm. <laughs> it's like as a training psychologist i always feel like i have to like okay but the truth is oh psychologically, yeah. i always have to I, feel like i drop that in anyway that's okay yes i'm kind of pedantic yeah. about that too when it comes to certain things yeah. about music so yeah why don't you give me another song to play that might launch into some other aspects of of your thinking on the topic sure yeah if we want to stay maybe with larry for uh, a little bit longer. Um, sure. I think something that's interesting is uh, he he wrote a few other songs about the end times. Actually, I mean, this was something that you know was obviously very important to his thinking. Um, so there's, I think, another like five or six of them. You know, th- this idea keeps coming up again that Jesus is going to be returning soon, right? And so we need to be prepared. So I think maybe let's let's look at the outlaw if you can kind of get the end that last verse of that song some say he was the son of god a man above all men but he came to be a servant and to set us free from sin and that's who i believe he was because that's who i believe and i think we should get ready because it's time for us to So what I'm hearing there is it, it's really just like a song about Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, the outlaw. So it's using sort of an, an Americana country trope to yeah. talk about this countercultural figure. Right. Which you could stop there or you could go into a sort of progressive politics direction, a civil mm-hmm. rights direction with that. Like, and so should we be, you know, right. uh, basically civil disobedience toward justice, but he doesn't. He says, so we should be ready for him to return because we yeah. gotta get the f- it's out time of here, for us basically. to leave. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, because he is sort of describing these are different ways that people have, you know, mentioned or talked about Jesus, right? So he's an outlaw, he's a politician, you know, he ends with he is the son of God, right? Yeah, but I think what I find so interesting about this song is in, you know, it has that kind of political dimension. And this is one of the critiques, obviously, that's made about the baby boomers and the Jesus people that they were kind of politically quiescent, right? They didn't go out and protest in the streets against against the war and yeah. um, in favor of civil rights the way that we wish they had in, in many cases, right? This is actually a song that in some ways Larry is identifying with himself, right? Because he is that outlaw when it comes to Christian rock, right? A lot of Christians rejected him for being, for playing rock music in the first place. And then even people within the scene uh, kind of going into the seventies, they kind of began turning on him and maybe it's, you know, kind of 
because he was the tallest poppy, right? And they want to cut him down or something. But there's just a lot of rumors flying around about him. And, you know, he he wasn't um, a shrinking violet, right? He would kind of, he would provoke people to deliberate, yeah, deliberately. He was right? a rock star, essentially. Yeah, right. And he had <laughs> he a lot of Much in the, the molds that we understand. Yes. And he, he did critique the church. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting. So I think we could contrast it with, for instance, there's a, a song by Jackson Brown. Mm-hmm. The also a seventies kind of famous singer songwriter, yeah. Also writing in Southern California, and he has a song called "The Rebel Jesus." The Rebel Jesus, yeah. That's what now it doesn't come out till two thousand and five, mm-hmm. so it's not a contemporaneous song with Larry Norman. Yeah, but it is an example of using that kind of outlaw uh, theme. Uh, mm-hmm. of an acoustic song in an Americana type tradition. Yeah. But listen to the lyrics. I- I'm going to take the third verse here yeah. from Jackson Brown's song, and we can contrast this usage of that theme right. in a more kind of progressive direction. Um, so here's here's The Rebel Jesus by Jackson Brown. We guard our world with locks and guns And we guard our fine possessions And once a year when Christmas comes We give to our relations And perhaps we give a little to the poor If the generosity should seize us But if any one of us should interfere In the business of why there are poor They get the same as the rebels so that's a little bit too Marxist for the Jesus people, probably, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, and perhaps we give a little to the poor if the generosity should seize us. But if mm-hmm. any one of us should interfere in the business of why there are poor, yeah. they get the same as right. the rebel Jesus. They get mm-hmm. crucified. Yeah. So that's so interesting. It's using that same lyrical motif, but it's not galvanizing a sort of socially and politically conservative movement. It mm-hmm. is critiquing it. And yeah. Larry Norman, he he is kind of a, he is an intermediary, intermediary figure. Cause I think in some ways he did needle the conservative establishment, mm-hmm. maybe more culturally than theologically, just cause he was such a hippie type and, yeah. and you know, a rebel by yeah. nature, but those are very different kind of final messages totally using that same motif that's interesting Mm -hmm. yeah larry was in in some ways you know he was kind of progressive in certain areas i know he was very passionate about civil rights and uh you know he he actually believed that god was going to judge the the church for its racism and you know yeah um, and he did occasionally i mean he talked a lot about poverty and and war and stuff like that right um but he wasn't really trying to inspire kind of protest movements or any kind of collective action, right? With his music. Well, I think that gets to it, Matt, because that is maybe one way we could say that we can see the power of the theology Mm -hmm. because the particular theology of, well, it's all going to burn and then Jesus will start again fresh and mm-hmm. at the at the point of the fresh start, there is a binary of yeah. in or out. Right. That has such ultimacy exactly, as yeah. a as a framework, as a, as a set of claims. Mm-hmm. So 
I think that even someone like Larry Norman, who probably personality wise is pretty close to Jackson Brown, maybe like wants to needle and is certainly willing to critique some of the excesses and uh, the unnecessary conservative tendencies of the church, perhaps mm-hmm. the warmongering, the supporting of war and other immoral activities. Ultimately, the theology that he become became formed by in the early 70s or I don't know, I don't know his story, maybe in the late 60s, but mm-hmm. that he kind of he was formed by that apocalyptic expectation yeah. and that understanding that at that point there would be a wheat and chaff separation. Yeah. And so you can only go so far with the social progress, the this worldly bringing heaven to earth here and now, if that's what you think is ultimately going to happen. And I think that is a microcosm for the Jesus movement people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's wasted effort, right, in a way. Yes. And they never as, I mean, individuals have, have broken off from that. And I've had incredible conversations with boomers who have left behind (laughs) pun pun not intended at first left behind that eschatology and that sort of binary ultimacy view. But most of them have not. And I think that you can also explain partially the, the popularity of the left behind books by the fact that it reignited that fire in those Mm. people who then were old enough to be, in positions of power yeah. at book distributors, at publishing companies, at yeah. publishing mm-hmm. companies you know, kind of holding all the levers of, of Christian media influence. And it was like returning to their first love and they can't really get away from that framing of their love of God, their genuine right. love of God for, for many of them, um, maybe most of them. But yeah, so it, it, it constrains because it has ultimate claims around it. We have got some seriously cool stuff coming up for patrons of this show. You can become a patron for five bucks a month at patreon.com slash Dan Coke. That link is in the show notes. But what do you get? Well, you get exclusive access to the Facebook group, only paying members. And let me tell you, that makes for a better group. But the stuff I am interested in telling you about today is some of these upcoming episodes. We've got um, a full-length conversation with Samantha Perez. She is a longtime and super involved member of this community, especially those in the Facebook group will will recognize her name. We have a a full-length conversation around what's changed in her life over these past four or five years, including um, transitioning. We've also got a brand new Generation Gap Culture Hour with Josh and Tony coming up soon. What else? There is a conversation about the psychology of Christian nationalism on the horizon. Another one, uh, some interesting original research by Brandon Flannery on why people are leaving Christianity uh, based on his research. Just a bunch of cool stuff coming. It's a great time to join the Patreon. So if you're interested in that, or if you just want to support this work financially, and you don't care about any of those extra episodes, that's fine. I would care about them, but I'm not going to judge you, and I will still accept your <laughs> your grateful support. Uh, Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Five bucks a month. That link is in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. That might be... A logical transition to I know you had a couple questions for me about the end times and mental health stuff that I sort of uncovered. Um, so I don't know if you have any any specific questions around that. Maybe we can weave that in here. 
Yeah, well, I guess I'm, I'm really curious when you were interviewing people who kind of came to faith in the late 60s, um, you know, I know obviously the rapture uh, was a major focus of your research. So what role did things like, you know, I wish we'd all been ready or maybe other kind of songs about this end times or maybe the thief in the night movies and other kind of cultural products like that have on the, the experience of the people that you interviewed? Yeah. So those interviews, I did fewer of those. I did four interviews with boomers mm -hmm. around that period. And I think those episodes are called end times expectations or so something like that. And it's a two-parter. Um, Josh will put a link in the show notes to, to all of these episodes, the end times anxiety and the end times expectations. And in that, in the expectations episodes, I, I played a clip. One of the people I interviewed was my mom's old friend who recorded my mom's band in college okay. covering, <laughs> I wish we'd all been ready. Mm -hmm. So that song literally played a role in my mother's life in her mm -hmm. early twenties as she was forming her adult Christian identity. And it was, you know, the, the thing that everybody who I asked this question to gave the same answer around the ubiquity of that expectation, mm -hmm. you know, that was put forward in the Larry Norman song, but other songs as well. And one of the lines, I think it was from Steve, um, my mom's friend, he said, everybody just knew. Yeah. You didn't really have to question. It wasn't like a, a con an article of contention. Yeah. It just was obvious to everyone that this was all wrapping up soon. And mm -hmm. Jesus was coming back again, plausibility structures. Right. So the music, I, I don't think you could get to that level of obviousness without the music. And I'll give you an example from an entirely different subculture to mm -hmm. prove the point. So I grew up on punk rock yeah. Uh, in high school and beyond. And if you listen to enough punk rock and your friends listen to enough punk rock, you can develop, especially in adolescence and early adulthood, everybody knows that authority is not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's so obvious to you that all these authorities with all their rules and expectations, they're so out of touch. Maybe if you have a little bit more Nuance, you might say they're serving corporate interests, you know, mm -hmm. or something like that. Of course, these wars are just about oil. It's fucking obvious to everybody. And like at that time, it does seem obvious. And we were roughly the age of these Jesus movement hippies, mm -hmm. you know, 18 to 25, that kind of era. And <laughs> like, I do think that there are people who are enriched off of oil contracts when countries go to war, but I no longer think that all these wars are obviously about oil. And I certainly don't think that all major authorities are obviously suspect. Like mm -hmm. I'm pretty happy with the national institutes of health and <laughs> <laughs> many authorities, uh, you know, in the world, but it seemed so obvious to me then that that was the case. And so that's kind of how I think about what I heard from them. Yeah, when you use the term plausibility structures, you know, it makes me think of um, Borgia called doxa, right? It's just the taken for granted. You don't really know when you started thinking this. It's just always kind of been there in the air, right? You didn't have to be presented with this information or maybe because it happened when you were so young that, you know, you just grew up thinking that way. And it's almost defines the boundaries of, you know, what you're, you're even able to question. And I think, you know, for me, that was true because 
it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I realized that some Christians didn't really think that the rapture was going to happen or was kind of this came to understand that it was sort of cobbled together by a whole bunch of different verses in the Bible. Um, and that whole kind of narrative wasn't something that you could easily get to just by a literal reading of the Bible, which is what, you know, right. of course, fundamentalists claim to be doing. Yeah, I mean, that really kind of was foundational in sort of my own deconstruction or whatever you want to call it. But what's interesting here is that something emerges maybe late 60s, early 70s, -hmm. that is different because in the 60s, well, certainly in the 50s, you have all this optimism. So these boomers are growing up in the era of the mushrooming suburbs. Everyone's got their own cars to drive. Everyone's got their own color TV set. Mm -hmm. This is the age of like consumerism really coming into its own. And then in the 60s, you've got counterculture, but a lot of that counterculture is super optimistic until Mm. it starts focusing on civil rights and and the Vietnam War. Right. But even there's hope involved in that and whatnot. And then, I mean, the way I would conceive of it, you know, as a non-academic in this area would be then that dream starts to die. And you see that reflected in the films of the 1970s. There's a lot of you know, tons of conspiracy movies do really well in the box office, right? Like these authorities can't be trusted actually quite similar to the, to the punk rock milieu Mm -hmm. that I grew up in the nineties. And so that I think does, it's a little different than sort of the things you're raised with from childhood because it's more like a societal large scale shift. But again, that feels obvious to everybody. And I think that other people in 19, let's say 1970 to 74, if you just grabbed um, younger Americans who were not Christians, they didn't join the Jesus movement. So it wasn't obvious to them that Jesus was coming back soon. But I'll bet you to a lot of them, it was obvious that stuff was going to shit. Yeah. And they just wouldn't have had the theological language to to pin it on. Right. Yeah. It was still that anxiety over war and nuclear destruction and all of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, that totally makes sense. You know, another way in which these songs became powerful to people was, you know, maybe for some of them, they did have this, you know, amazing collective experience of singing whatever love song tunes or something in concert. Right. But it's kind of interesting that for, for Larry Norman, he wasn't actually really into that. And apparently he sometimes would stop his audiences if they were clapping along with the music or singing along because he thought then they were having too much fun and he didn't want huh. them to just be entertained. He wanted them to think about what he was saying and really kind of take it to heart. And, you know, so a bit of a, a God complex there, right? So, well, um, or I, I just think of that as kind of an artistic yeah. provocateur. Totally. I mean, he's almost got a little Andy Warhol in him or something like that. You know? Yeah. I think that's a good comparison, but I think, you know, this whole aspect of what, what do people kind of find meaningful in, in music term that comes up a lot in studies of you know pop music is authenticity right so i think Mm. um there there are a lot of ways in which music can be perceived to be authentic but there's this one popular music scholar uh alan moore no relation to the the comic book um, author yeah Yeah, uh he talks about you know first person second person and third person authenticity and how people see themselves in the music that's uh being performed for them, right? So first person authenticity would be the artist is saying something that's true to themselves, right? So maybe like Taylor Swift at different periods in her career has definitely exemplified that, right? And 
tons um, of sort of straight from the diary type songs. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Right. That kind of confessional or they seem storytelling. to be anyway. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Whether or not. Yeah. Yeah. And then that kind of feeds into second person authenticity where the, the listener perceives something that's true about their own self in the music that's being sung. Right. Um, so, and I think for a lot of, again, Taylor Swift fans, they would definitely see that. Right. Yeah. A song like you belong with me. You're with that girl. You should be with me or you're with that boy. You should be with me. Yeah. Right? A lot. Who can't relate to pining after a, a crush who is with a different person that you think is a worse fit. That yeah. has happened to most of us at some point in our lives. And if you happen Absolutely. to be 14 and it's happening to you right now, as that song comes on pop radio, we can understand how that would be a real bonding between you and the artist. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, third person authenticity would be more, is the artist kind of depicting the life of someone who they are not, but you know, something that seems true to life. And I would think of, you know, John Prine writing about a middle-aged Alabama housewife and an angel from Montgomery or, you know, something like that, where people actually, you know, know that this artist really is not that person they're, they're writing about, but still seems something true to experience that people can identify with. Right. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of country songs would really fall into that category, like classic yeah. country storytelling. Exactly. You yeah. know, he stopped loving her today. Like that doesn't right. have to be about him, mm -hmm. uh, but it, Oh wow. That's like, yeah. Somebody passing away or, you know, the, the way that love can last up until the last moment of someone's death or, you know, mm -hmm. the last moment of their life or something like that. Yeah. So can you say something true about experience even though it's very far from your own experience, right? I think that's something yeah. that a lot of people also value in an artist. Um, but I think for for all of this to work, uh, kind of in you know Larry Norman or other other Christian rock artists, like are they saying something that's true to the listener's experience of the world, right? Do they get at that second person person authenticity? Can you see yourself in what you're hearing? So I think that's a very important aspect in you know kind of making you accept the narratives that are being put out there. Right. And, uh, kind of taking that to heart as part of your own identity, that kind of second person authenticity. Interesting. So where do you see that? Like maybe, I don't know if you have a song example you could think of where one of these early Christian artists is describing something that members of that movement might've really felt, uh, mm -hmm. true in the moment. Yeah. I wish we'd all been ready as a good example, right? Because we're talking about all of this anxiety that people were feeling um, and just that fear that the world is ending and they can really identify with that, right? So I think because this song is both general and specific at the same time, right? Um, it's something that people could just take to heart as reflecting their understanding of the world, right? Well, we also talked about Welcome Back by Love Song, that, yeah. that idea of... For anybody who felt like, oh, yeah, I there is a return here, whether or not they were maybe they were raised because most boomers like the sort of statistically average white boomer was raised mainline Protestant at that mm -hmm. time in America. That is the sort of peak of the mainline Protestant sort of civic religion. And the, it was a social club for many. It was to some, to a lot of boomers, it felt like dead ritual that yeah. was more about living a kind of good citizen life than it was sort of radically religious mm -hmm. uh, or relational in any way. And, and yet there's a part of it that probably did feel like a welcome, like returning to the, you know, 
there's always a reformation going on in new religious movements. There's mm-hmm. some aspect that we are reclaiming the original. Yeah. And so I think that in that sense, that would be that second person authenticity. Let, let me play a little bit of that song, maybe some of the yeah. lyrics that might attach that. So here's Welcome Back by Love Song. Welcome back what you knew was right from the start All you had to do was to be what you always wanted to be for a lot of listeners who did experience that conversion experience, right? That road to Damascus moment, they would absolutely find that incredibly true to what they had experienced, right? What they'd gone through. And then every time they hear that song afterward, it's going to bring up those, those same feelings and memories, right? Yes. Yeah. So this is kind of a semiotic uh, phenomenon called indexicality, just, you know, the connection between a sign and other things that, happen around that sign and that sign has the potential to then summon up those feelings anytime you experience it again in the future so whether that's emotional or you know the the kind of things that were happening in your life that were seemed incredibly important right or some of those anxieties right and maybe this was also a time when you were falling in love with somebody you just met at in the in the new Jesus movement, right? You had both been converted and this is bringing up those kinds of experiences of first love, right? Like there's just so many emotional resonances that could happen when people are thinking back to the songs of their youth or songs that occurred during pivotal times in their lives, right? It's crazy, man. Like I never even lived in that era, but the way that media can shape a nostalgic longing I wish I had fallen in love with a fellow Jesus hippie in 1971. Uh-huh. Like, like <laughs> I wish I was in that era and had that experience. That would be the fucking coolest thing ever. I, I lionize the late sixties and early seventies because of the music that I love, Yeah, you know, and uh, a lot of the movies that I love. And it's, it's just crazy. Like this stuff is so flexible. Once you get any kind of media, which probably includes folk songs that anybody can play on a guitar or a lyre or what, you know, whatever they had in any kind of folk culture, like there's such power there. What I was going to say, listening back to that song too, is that, and I don't know this, this is me going a little bit over my skis here, but I'm, I'm just kind of pontificating in the moment. Mm -hmm. A lot of deep religious experience, I think connects us to earlier and more innocent versions of ourselves. Mm. Jesus talks about let the little children come faith like a child. But I also think about like simple, like compassion practices and like a basic, like loving kindness meditation that I've done, which is more of a Buddhist practice. Mm -hmm. There's a simplicity, you know, when we are, when we are connecting spiritually to ourselves or what, you know, to God or to whatever, mm-hmm. there is an elementalness. There is a childlikeness to it, a, a purity. 
And I think you could even analyze that song musicologically, those mm-hmm. long welcome back vocal chords under which the, the lyrics are coming. Yeah. It is, it's liturgical in a way it's, it's repetitive. It's, it's lullaby esque. Now I'm really just having fun, but I think there's something there about, and, and it is that perceiving something true about oneself in the song. If you've mm-hmm. had any kind of experience of a reconnection to something primal and young and beautiful mm-hmm. and innocent and loving in yourself, then especially if you live in that time and this music style is appealing to you for that song to kind of tap in, I get why someone literally 50 years later would be excited to talk about that track Mm. and that band and the experience of that. Cause that's just the deepest shit right Right. there. Yeah. And the other thing that's important here is that, you know, this isn't just a poem that someone heard at one time in their life, right? Welcome back to the place where you used to belong or whatever. Right. I mean, some people do find important connections with poetry, but music operates multimodally, right? It's, operating on all of these different levels. You've got harmony, you've got rhythm, you've got, um, you know, melody, you've got ornamentation, you've got structure, you've got tempo, you've got length of notes and right. All of those different things can mean on different levels and they can all be meaning multiple things, right? They can be meaning different things simultaneously, or they can be meaning things that all kind of support a single interpretation. Right. So I think that this is, yeah, it just adds to the motion, the emotional resonance of music, right? Because it is something that operates on all of these levels. And it's not only propositional and logical and language-based and rational, yes. right? Yeah. And this is why the music has taken on a bigger role in my trying to understand that moment and the end mm-hmm. times expectation. Because yeah. if you just look at it logically, it's an incredibly unlikely claim. <laughs> there are so many jumps. So even if you think, oh, well, we'll probably blow ourselves up with nukes yeah, because now we have nukes. Okay. But like, that's not a one-to-one to the return of Jesus. Right. Like, why wouldn't Jesus just come after new, nu- like, why would nukes do that? There's, there's mm-hmm. no, that's not in the Bible anywhere. It's, there's no obvious one-to-one there. No obvious line to draw. Right. Right. And then you got to think about by the seventies, we knew the size of the universe. Everybody knew it. Like it wasn't like specialist knowledge that there are a billion galaxies. Yeah. So that context is really hard to make sense of. Mm -hmm. Jesus comes back on earth. Do we literally see him in the sky on this planet? What about the rest of the universe? Mm -hmm. So there's disconnect there. And then there's just the simple fact that, other than maybe you could say some predictions that came true that weren't specifically about the end of the world, mm-hmm. all the previous end of the world predictions by definition did not come to pass. Mm-hmm. They have not happened. So why this one? So if you look at a logical thing, you go, it's so hard to understand how 40 million people could all agree on this. Just yeah. incredibly difficult thing. The music and the collective effervescent of those moments yeah. and the plausibility structures of, we all just agree on this. 
I mean, again, to, to take it back to punk rock and question authority, man, yeah. of course we all know we should do it. And of course you should question some authority, but <laughs> that idea of just like, of course we all know that this thing is true. It, it has taken such a larger role in my own under trying to understand that moment, which yeah. birthed so much of the culture that I was, was raised with. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, all of those things are sort of taken as a package deal. Right. Um, and when you come to it through sort of this ecstatic conversion experience, you don't maybe have the critical faculties to think, you know, something really powerful just happened to me. You know, I think I only maybe agree with 70% of what this very charismatic right. figure is telling me, right? Like some of the stuff is a little bit dodgy. Maybe I should do some more research, right? Because uh, I mean, these people were young, they're joining these Bible studies and, you know, yep. this full fervor of, of a new belief and, uh, you know, just being taught sometimes by people who are maybe like three years older than them or the same age as them. Right. Yeah. So, and where were these people getting their information? It was from Chuck Smith, right. Who was a diehard proponent of this end times yep. uh, theology and, you know, Hal Lindsey's book was coming out and everyone was just eating that stuff up. And yeah. Because we've been hurt. So many of us have been hurt in evangelical contexts. We, we kind of undervalue the role that, a 20 something finding a faith community of people of similar culture, mm -hmm. opening the Bible multiple times a week, hearing the words of Jesus, doing some, even if half-assed attempt at like, you know, like any, any version of that is going to be powerful. Like mm -hmm. the God, the sermon on the Mount is still changing lives 2000 years later. Yeah. Like there is actual power in the Christian story in the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that was a moment where they were pretty focused on Jesus. And, and there wasn't the kind of, Oh, that's liberal, uh, wokeism yeah. knee jerk reaction that, that literally those same people often today are, are, you know, sort of throwing out there in reaction yeah. to any kind of social thing back then they weren't doing that. You know, we talked in the Jesus Movement episodes about Explo 72 and yeah. that huge Woodstock-like um, Billy Graham-sponsored music festival with Johnny Cash and mm -hmm. Chris Christopherson and Larry Norman. And Billy Graham, you know, not, not giving a sort of lefty protest view, but still a very accommodationist like, yes, war, ecology, racial tension. Yeah. You know, these things are totally fair game for the Jesus person. Yeah. Now, the mechanism for fighting it was a different one. And it was all about just people coming to salvation. And then yeah, that will then trickle down will and great. solve the problems. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's problematic. But you don't have the kind of knee jerk like they were in their own minds the Jesus movement people, they could accommodate all of those societal stresses of the early seventies, mm -hmm. all that stuff. It actually did fit in with what they were learning in Bible study. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they didn't have to sort of exclude all the social welfare stuff because it didn't line up with Donald and Trump or whatever. They didn't yeah. have any of that. It was all fair game at the time. Mm -hmm. And so genuinely parts of their social heart their care for the poor and injustice were actually being engaged yeah. and they're singing worship songs and they are praying and they are 
thinking about their lives and they are falling in love because they're in the era where they're, they're partnering up they're and starting age, families. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. having young children. They're, you know, of course this sort of catalyzed their adult lives from a subcultural standpoint and a religious standpoint. Of course it did. It yeah. is one way of thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was such a different world then, wasn't it? I mean, Jimmy Carter was elected as a evangelical Democrat. Right. right? I mean, well, yes. I guess we've had, different versions of that happening, like the really religiosity of the democratic party. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, such a huge shift there kind of, as you were, you were describing that it brought to mind something you mentioned at the beginning of this interview um, and about how, you know, mainline churches today don't really employ that kind of collective effervescence uh, you yeah. could call it. Although some people would probably say they find that in certain kind of hymn singing traditions and whatever. Right. But yeah. I think, you know, that relates also to sort of this mistrust of of music as a potential weapon or potential, you know, force for yes, manipulating absolutely. you. And, you know, and it's not just about kind of this uh, Christian need to remain rational or whatever. I think it's because people who grew up in these kind of evangelical or Pentecostal contexts have seen kind of the harm that can can be caused by sort 100%. of this unthinking yep. group identity. Right. And um I mean, that kind of relates to something that I was really interested in. I was trying to see if it related to Larry Norman or not, but, you know, kind of what is happening today with QAnon and with kind of what's, what's musically going on there. Are people still finding resonance in these narratives or are they doing other things with it? Because, you know, the kind of conspiracy thinking in some ways that's happening today, that could definitely be mapped onto fears of the end of the world. Right. But the kind of narrative that's come about about how this is going to be solved just doesn't seem to line up with um, kind of the revelation rapture narratives that we've been, we were kind of raised on, you know, when we were kids. Just pulling up a little Google search here, white evangelicals are the most likely to endorse conspiratorial beliefs in terms of the American electorate. So hard to know where the causality runs there is, is someone like Sean Foyt, just the fact that he is a, you know, conservative evangelical worship leader that kind of already places him in that group. And so there are certain levers he could pull sort of whatever his actual beliefs happen to be, or, you know, who knows exactly. Um, And the, and the causal arrows there are a bit opaque, but interesting. So I I love that for like a, a future area Mm -hmm. of study. Yeah. And, and what the role, it does feel to me also like, music just cannot possibly play as big of a role in 2023 as it did in 1972. Mm -hmm. That that is just a cultural difference that music was at the center of culture Uh, other than maybe Taylor Swift. It's just not. And Taylor Swift, she is, I mean, there's some interesting data actually out there for the music nerds that she is, as I understand it, she has like demolished pop star records. Uh, I checked the other day after hearing some stuff about this on the Bill Simmons podcast uh, from a music writer that, that he's friends with that like, and I, and I went and checked at the time that I checked the other day, she had nine albums in the top 20 billboard album charts. The only one is her debut, which is basically a country record. She has 10 albums, Matt, nine of them are currently in the top 20. Mm -hmm. And I don't, Michael Jackson never did that. I don't know if the Beatles, the Beatles didn't even have 10 albums. Yeah. So maybe there's something about singles where the Beatles might've at the height of Beatlemania, maybe they had a better singles record, but like she is just 
a true force of nature. But even but she doesn't sing about sort of the deepest values, yeah, right? Right. Um, she's not love political and performer. she's not political. She's yeah. not particularly religious. Yeah. Like pop music today stops before those, you know, religion and politics sort of hot mm-hmm. button issues. If you engage them, you are limiting yourself to 50% of the populace yeah, because of right. polarization. Mm-hmm. So there are good reasons for her to not do that. But so I don't think there's an analog today for the role that music played yeah. in the 60s, 70s, and maybe into the 80s. Then you get MTV. Now you've got more of a visual medium. Uh, movies become, you know, bigger events after Jaws in 1972. Yeah. You know, you start to splinter off. Then you get video games. And, you, you know, the the sort of media landscape splinters off in a way where in the 60s and 70s, music can can really be king. Yeah. And it's and so there there's also that element. I, I agree with you. Um and I think obviously it's been much more splintered, right? In terms of what the way people experience music and the kind of genres they're able to listen to. And there isn't sort of domination by a few kind of top right. 40 radio stations. Right. But um, I think, you know, it is, it is pretty significant that still, you know, when we're thinking about evangelicalism, kind of this worship, mu- worship music scene is, is quite important and powerful i would say right it is and it um is, yeah that's a way that people engage with music on a regular basis mm-hmm. and it seems to have kind of taken over the the whole christian music industry right when i i haven't really kept up with new artists in the christian music recording business but um you know i don't know that there are as many people who are kind of you know, maybe like if you think of a Derek Webb or a Rich Mullins or people who are within that evangelical world, but we're still a little bit critical sometimes and trying to, yeah. you know, point out things in an artful way. Yeah, like jars I of clay. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. It seems like today it's all worship. Yeah. And you can tell in the way that those companies market their products that it has actually been quite watered down in the sense of like, you know, K-Love, the biggest Christian radio chain. It's positive, uplifting K-Love. That is their, that's yeah. their slogan. And it's, it's, it's the Joel Osteen of music. It is yeah. like, hey, you know, like it's, this is something for people with hard lives to feel a little bit better for 30 yeah. minutes. Yeah, and they connect it to God. And, mm-hmm. and some people probably have very deep experiences listening to worship music and, and they, you know, especially if it reminds them of what they're doing in church, Mm -hmm. but also it is formatted in such a way that just like anybody who wants a, an experience of some positivity full stop can throw this on. So that's different than the early seventies. That's way different than Larry Norman Mm -hmm. or Keith green being like, guys, fucking pay attention. This shit is all coming to an end. Mm -hmm. It's happening. That, that is not what we get today in worship music. Yeah. Yeah. Get right with the Lord. Mm-hmm. So, well, maybe that's a good place to end it. Uh, Matt, what a fun conversation, dude. I know people have loved listening to this and I love having the conversation. Yeah. Well, thanks for making a venue for me to talk about these things. And, you know, I think I maybe discussed 15% of what I thought I might, but <laughs> that's how it goes, right? These organic Yeah, discussions. that's how it goes. Yes, yeah. we have to follow it. So uh, is there anywhere that people can engage with your work, like a link where anywhere we can send them? Uh, I'm not very online. There's, I guess, my academia page, which I don't update terribly often. But um, yeah, I should. But there's probably... some papers there and whatnot. Okay, yeah, well, we'll, we'll put that link in there for mm-hmm. for people who want to get nerdy with it. And in the future, if you have you know some update 
on this conversation, you can always pitch me to come back on and, and we can continue the conversation. All right. That'd be, that'd be fun. Thanks, Dan.